0: Hello, good evening, good day everybody and welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be amongst you all this fine evening over here and I hope you're all doing very, very well. Before I begin to greet you, let me just uh, inform you in case you're not aware that we now have a Discord channel and we also have a Telegram uh, channel. So you can find the links in the description below. And I would like to invite you all to join the Discord server and uh, participate in divisions, uh, in discussions, etc. over there. And uh, hopefully once we have sufficient uh, numbers of people, I could even do a private Ask Abhijit show on Discord, possibly eventually once we have sufficient numbers. And similarly on Telegram, the advantage of joining the Telegram channel is that you will be always notified of when a new video comes out. So, uh, please consider joining the Discord channel and the Telegram channel as well. Uh, so, yeah. So that's what I wanted to inform you. Beginning uh, in the in the very beginning. Now let's see who all is there on the live chat. I can see Vaishnavi, Jatin Arrow fourteen, Gorov S Adarsh Z L N L X twenty seven, Soumya Dikshit, Sumit Agarwal, Glassy Sky, Sumedha, Amit Gosain. Feminist Slayer, Ansh Sharma Plash, Barno Pramanik, Sudhakar Abhinav, Akshay Rishabh, Sankalpananda, Akshay Saurabh Badoria, Aryan Sharma, Pawan, Suraj Mukund, Karan Nalavad, G. Sai Siddharth, Dr. Suryakan Dagar, Charvaka, Kartik Pundir, Tejas, History for You, Arvindar Singchuhal, Bugabhisen, Harsh Jain, Devashish, Licht Threat Ripper Shade Manchester City Jaydeep Mitra Dungar Singh Johan Rinigan Rinki Kumari uh, Shajin Nirmit Rakshit Abhinav Mahesh Arjit Arijit Samrat Aditi Nishant Pratik Venus Yadu Kishore Amarjyoti, Rudyuvraj Raj Mohan Roy Dinesh Chandra Piyanshi Meibankitlang Kharbudon, Aryan flanker, Ketan Vankede Abhinav, Vivek Kumar, Giri, Krishnan 63, Argya, Shrey Ram, Jetha, Jong Un, Pankaj Kumar, Teagi, Shashank, EW Joker, and so many people Om Be- Bekarikar, Ryuk, Raj, GK, Bharat First, Silky, Somia, Sherlock Holmes, Sagar, Durga, Thinking Flex, and everybody else Dr. Jayshankar Supremacy, Ali Raza Ansari, Shaheen Vahman Zadegan, Veg Chicken, And everybody else okay 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 let me let me stop that it's already four minutes in Mm -hmm. otherwise i'll be able i'll be matthew perez hello so i'll be otherwise you know greeting you all until then you know the end of this session so let's let's stop the greetings now Mm -hmm. i greet you all collectively thank you so much now let's get into the questions where shall we begin so let's let's get going. Ask me your questions, and let's take some interesting questions. Maybe some fun questions. I like fun. I like to laugh. I like to be happy. We often get very serious questions and things that sometimes kind of make me a little bit angry at times. <laughs> well, yeah, I I always say, don't I, that we should uh, keep emotions aside. Well, it doesn't mean that emotions don't exist. Emotions do exist but when we make decisions we have to keep emotions aside and think logically and clinically anyhow let's take uh, some questions let us begin with tejas tejas says what are your views on kumari kandam do you think it existed well the the question of kumari kandam has been around for quite some time and apparently um, in certain texts uh, uh, tamil texts it, it, it is written that there used to be a much uh, larger area that was uh, inhabited by by People in ancient times, and it was called Kumari Kandam, uh, and so now people have constructed, uh, you know, w- theories or hypotheses out of this, uh, out of this uh, textual evidence that we have, and some people call it Lemuria or something. Some people just call it Kumari Kandam, and the claim is that there was a massive, enormous continent south of uh, the southern part of India in the Indian Ocean that was called Kumari Kandam. Well, I would invite you all to take a look at undersea undersea, uh, maps of the Indian Ocean. We clearly, we have very detailed and very clear maps of the uh, bottom of the Indian Ocean and the entire world essentially. And you can clearly see the tracks left behind by the tectonic movement of the Indian subcontinent from Africa all the way into Eurasia when it slammed into Eurasia. You can see the tracks left behind. You know, you can see the ridges and tracks. So it's clear that uh, this, this event happened of the Indian subcontinent moving away from uh, Africa because of tectonic activity about 120 million years ago and slamming into the Eurasian uh, continent about 50-40 million years ago. That's when it began. But there is no evidence of a sunken continent that was once above The ocean. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever of that. The uh, evidence, the data is unambiguous. There was no such hidden or or sunken continent that would have once been above the surface of the ocean in maybe during the last glacial uh, minimum when uh, maybe 12,000 or so years ago when the sea levels were about 120 or so meters below where they are today. So there is no such continent. But there, there we, we we do find evidence of uh, sunken cities, all across, all around the the geography of the Indian subcontinent. In the west, we have Dwarka and the Gulf of Kambath archaeological complex, which is a network of uh, submerged mm. cities. And in the south, also, you know, in the east of of the coast of Tamil Nadu, you do we do find, uh, only recently. The archaeologists, uh, I think in February or January or somewhere around that time, they discovered a large submerged city uh, close to present-day Puducherry, Pondicherry. It's approximately at least a hundred square kilometers. The site that's large, that's very large, and it's it's about eighty or hundred meters below the sea so that's that corresponds to a time period of at least 8 to 10000 years before today and it's being speculated right now we don't know for sure but it could be the lost city of kaveri pun kaveri Pumpertnam of the sangam era so it's clear that indian civilization whether it's, a, the, it's it's at least 10000 years old if not much older than that right and uh, that that dates back to the time the last ice age was very much in force So the contours of the Indian subcontinent were much larger than what they are today. Sri Lanka was connected, was part of the Indian subcontinent. It was not a separate island at that time. About 12, 15, 17,000 years before today, Sri Lanka was very much part of the Indian subcontinent. It was just one single land mass. So yes, if we want to interpret that as the lost continent or the lost land, Then it's very much that. But there is no large, enormous, submerged continent that will someday emerge. That's that's not the case. Okay, so uh, yeah, that is the answer. I don't think it existed because I have seen the data. There is no evidence that uh, such a large submerged continent ever existed. Right. So, my point is that we have to look at evidence. We have to look at evidence and base our understanding of the world on the hard evidence archaeological evidence empirical evidence right and there is no evidence of that and it it's not going to appear in the future new evidence of a lost continent it's not going to happen okay next 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 nishant duhan says is it true that a not too distant supernova explosion can cause an ice age on earth um not too distant supernova explosion. So let's let's think of uh, the closest star that we have, which is the Alpha Centauri Proxima Centauri system, which is about four point something light years away from Earth. That's a reasonably small star. It's it's not going to go supernova. Uh, so let's say we hypothetically, theoretically, we hypothetically that we have a supernova that goes off about ten years, uh, ten light years away from Earth. So that's going to go give off a shock wave and all that. Uh, It could certainly, uh, some of that ejected material over time could make its way to the solar system. I don't see it having a very large impact on the solar system. um, Because by the time it reaches the solar system, the outer contours, the outer areas of the solar system, it would have kind of dissipated and the shock won't be that much. It's going to be mostly gas only, gas and some dust. So, uh, no. So... don't see that happening. We do have other uh, astrophysical objects like quasars for instance uh, and gamma ray bursts. So those are very intense and very tightly collimated beams of extremely energetic radiation. So if one of that uh, phenomena impacts the earth i mean if in case this if phenomenon happens and the beam is aimed right at the earth it can strip away the ozone layer and the outer layers of the atmosphere and and you know expose us to solar radiation cosmic rays and all that and cause complete devastation on the planet and it's possible such things may have happened in the past it's a possibility that one of the the earth has gone through multiple waves of mass extinctions over the past Four and a half, let's say three point seven billion years. Uh, years ever since life e- is known to have emerged. So it, I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I don't remember. What, I, I don't remember which mass extinction event it was, but one of these mass extinction events is hypothesized as having possibly, perhaps, been caused by, you know, a, uh, one of these events. So, a supernova which may happen maybe 10, 20 light years away, won't really affect us too much, unless it's a very large supernova, like uh, for instance, a star like Betelgeuse, but we don't have any such star in our neighborhood, so we're we're safe. Okay. Light, right, right, let's see something else. Uh, Devansh Desai says, I want my friends to believe that our education system is not that useful, and our history is a lie, and Nehru and Gandhi were not good, and as they are glorified in books, what to do? Well, you can bring a camel to water, but you can't make the camel drink the water, right? So listen, the the point is this. uh, You should not spend too much time and effort and energy trying to convince people of what they don't want to believe. You can show them the evidence that you have and give them the choice of of whether they want to actually use their intelligence and and try to understand the evidence or whether they just, they just want to go along with the conditioning that is that the education system gives us. Most people don't want to make the effort, maybe, maybe because it's too too hard, it's too difficult. Thinking is is hard. Most people don't like to think. It hurts, I think, the brain. Yeah? So most people just want to be told what to think and they will think. They don't want to learn how to think because that's a difficult process so they, we go through the education system it takes us like years and years from the time we are essentially three years old until we are past 20 and we are repeatedly conditioned mentally conditioned mentally programmed brainwashed and we are told what to think that's how, how the education system is so most of us are comfortable with that very few people actually want to uh, you know consider new ideas and new information and possibly rethink the way they've been looking at the world. That's very rare. So I would say, Devansh, don't spend too much time and effort and energy trying to convince people. If they want to, you can you can give them the information and whatever knowledge, uh, understanding you have, and let them decide. That's what I would say. It's really hard to convince people, especially those who don't want to be convinced. All right, uh, right, all right, all right. All right. Uh, Right, Soronil Das says. Could you elaborate why Italy is banning English at the government level initially? Will wokeism be the downfall of the West? Um, these are two separate uh, things. Maybe there there may be some connection between them. I, yeah. Why do I think Italy is banning English? See, for the past several hundred years, the world has been ruled and controlled by the Anglo-Saxon Saxon Empire, the English-speaking. Uh, people they've been ruling the world and after 1945 with the end of the second world war Europe was essentially occupied by by the uh, Anglo-Saxon Empire, essentially the US with the UK as a vassal and uh, Italy and Germany came under permanent military occupation which still continues, most people don't see it because that's not what we are taught but it is the case and so the same happened to Japan after, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki So now that, so this situation still continues. There are US military bases on Italian soil, which are considered to be jointly operated bases. And and if you look at the Wikipedia article, it will say that the uh, Italian government has the right to any time ask the Americans to leave. Yeah, nice nice to know that. Thank you very much. So now that, now the world is changing significantly in the 2020s. We are witnessing a very rapid realignment of of a geopolitical of the geopolitical chessboard. And the world can visibly see that the influence of the US is decreasing. Not the power as such, but the influence is certainly decreasing. And with this decreased influence, there will be these, this, this uh, trend or this desire among the occupied nations to kind of start the process of breaking free from the shackles of the Anglo-Saxon Empire and uh yeah so that is part of i mean that's uh, and so this uh, move by the italian government to start uh, start you know phasing english out is most likely a step in that direction italy and india have reset the ties very significantly with the recent uh, visit of madame georgia meloni to india she was given a very warm warm welcome she had a great time in india she was given the greatest of respect and uh, so uh, india and italy seem to be resetting their ties and there's going to be you know after after many 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 years and decades of not very good relations but now things are on a different track and things are going well so all these nations in Europe, especially Western Europe, are now kind of looking eastwards, and they know that they can't really trust China. China is a dangerous nation. China doesn't. Uh, China seeks to replace the U.S. or the Anglo-Saxon empire and create a Chinese empire over the world, right? So China is a dangerous nation from that perspective. But India is not seen as a threatening nation India isn't that powerful yet of course first of all yeah when India in 20 years maybe reaches where China is today uh, maybe the world may perhaps you know ask itself what kind of a power is in India is India you know but at this point it's about co- cooperation collaboration and all that so we're seeing that uh, so yes uh, Italy maybe that's why Italy is trying to phase English out at certain levels. Um, Will wokeism be the downfall of the West? Yes, uh, for for whatever reason, the the powers that be in the West have turned on their own people. They're destroying their own society. They're destroying the structure, the foundations of society and culture. And uh, you see these cycles. You know, in 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 uh, Judean history, you have the concept of Sodom and Gomorrah. Which were two cities where, which were totally degenerate, degeneracy of of all kinds over there, you know. Whatever you traditionally hold as good, was 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 uh, kind of uh, uh, abused over there, and whatever you've traditionally seen as 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 bad or evil was celebrated in Sodom and Gomorrah, and then eventually you had the wrath of God, the biblical God, that destroyed these two cities. So that's 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 a tale or or a myth it's part of the mythology uh, we have no, not seen any evidence of these two cities ever existing but yeah that's part of the uh, mythology in the judean world and then obviously we have the example of the roman empire which descended into all kinds of excess and degeneracy Uh, for a couple of centuries while it was declining, declining. And today, uh, an empire doesn't decline over a couple of centuries. Today, we have technology which accelerates everything. It's an accelerant. Right? Uh, Technology is a catalyst for acceleration of change. So today, an empire disintegrates in 20, 30 years. And... uh, what we call, wokeism was earlier called social justice warrior behavior, SJW behavior, now it's called wokeism. You can call it whatever you want, but they are eating up their own culture and traditions and they're destroying the society. That's what we're witnessing. So we And, and they're trying to export it to other countries, including in India. So as we know, lots of media channels, I'm not saying all, but many possibly, potentially, allegedly, or maybe factually, are funded by, by outside forces, including from the West and obviously they will obviously if they are on their payroll they will do whatever these outside forces want them to do so they will portray certain you know they will try and import all of this behavior into India and try to influence the hearts and minds of young people especially so it could not just be the downfall of the West it could destroy India as well you know so one has to be careful we have to be careful here in India okay chirag avasthi says as the us dollar influence is declining globally so in the future could rupee could the rupee become become a global currency can india how can india make this happen you know a couple of 100 years ago the rupee was one of the dominant currencies in the world uh, even in the 19th century even in the 20th century the, the century the rupee was used as the currency in the crucial states in the middle east in the gulf region they had their own Gulf Rupee, which was an extension of the Indian Rupee. The Rupee was one of the main drivers of the economy, but after 1944, we had the um, what's it called? What's it called? The name eludes me. Uh, the Bretton Woods the Bretton Woods system was was created. And the U.S. dollar was adopted as the global reserve currency because the U.S. essentially had won the Second World War and had the world at, at its uh, feet. So that's what happened. And then this, the West started devaluing the Indian rupee. Some people will say Abhijit has no idea of what he's saying. It was the Indian government that was devaluing the Indian rupee. Well, please remember what happened in 1947. It was a transfer of power from one set of crooks to another set of crooks. So it was Western agents that come to power that came to power in India in 1947. And until very recently, it was the same people who were ruling India in their own way. And they were doing whatever was well, you know. So we know that their their, their economic policies, etc. And other policies were terrible for India. And you saw the devaluation, gradual devaluation of the Indian rupee over time. I think in the 1990s, $1 was 30 or so rupees, roughly. Give or take here and there something. Okay, I don't remember exactly what it is. Google it if you want. So around around the 1990s, $1 was around roughly 25, 30 rupees. Today, it's around 80 rupees. There was a time when $1 was 1 rupee. You know, So the West has exported its inflation to India by using the Indian rupee and so on. So eventually, what's going to happen is that the Indian rupee will indeed rise. What India has to do is to enter into bilateral and multilateral agreements with other nations to use the Indian rupee as a medium of exchange and medium of trade. And obviously, this will only work if India rises economically. Right now, India is a 3.5, roughly trillion dollar economy. We have to first reach the 5 trillion dollar mark and then the 10 trillion dollar mark to really matter in the world. But, People can see the world can see the trajectory that Indian the the Indian economy is upon, so uh, so we are in good shape. So what India needs to do is to uh, is to keep growing its economy. That's what India has to do. Focus on the economy. Keep growing the economy. Ensure there is no major military conflict with other nations for the next 20 years, at least 10 years, hopefully 20 years. By the time we will be in a really good position. Yeah. So, why? Now, the first question is why is the US dollar uh, influence declining uh, globally? Because the, now the world in the past 10, 20 years has kind of seen through what the U.S. has done to the world. They always take this position of moral superiority. They talk about human rights, democracy. Uh, day before yesterday, one of the, uh, uh, I forget the name of the person on Twitter, who be, who works for the for Rand Corporation, which destroyed the life and career of John Forbes Nash, the, gr- the great mathematician and economist. So that corporation, Rand Corporation, which is the U.S. think tank, which is affiliated with the defense establishment, one of their minions was lecturing Vietnam on human rights. It's it's like Germany lecturing the Jews about human rights, that sort of thing. The Americans, we all know what they did in Vietnam: untold horrific atrocities. They destroyed an entire nation. They bombed millions of tons of of uh, you know bombs on on the civilians of Vietnam. Not just uh, not just Vietnam, Cambodia also, Laos also, yeah. And Agent Orange. But horrific chemical that still causes genetic defects in people. That, that's what they sprayed liberally over the forests of Vietnam. Vietnam is still full of anti-personnel and other mines. People still die every year because of that. Who did that? And all the massacres the Americans perpetrated, the my, my Lai massacre and whatnot. And they are lecturing Vietnam on human rights today. It's 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 like a Global cosmic joke, you know, it's it's the epitome, the 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 pinnacle, the zenith of shamelessness. So the world has seen through what the Americans truly are. You know, they are nothing but a hard, hegemonic, destructive power that seeks to rule the world, and they don't want democracy or human rights anywhere. They're very happy to prop up dictatorships all across Africa. They have they propped up the Saudi. Uh, kingdom, which is not a democracy, which doesn't belong, believe in human rights. They propped up this one family, the family, the House of Saud, for decades. And now that Muhammad bin Salman is trying to actually liberalize the country to a certain extent, they they are very much against him. So the world is seen through this, and of course, other powers are now emerging. That's the real reason why the influence of the U.S. dollar is declining. The Russians and the Chinese and possibly certain other nations could come together and create their own currency and all that. So these are the things that are happening right now. The 2020s are going to be a decade of great, great churn and realignment. And by the time 2030 comes around, it's going to be a very different world in so many different ways. So uh, that's the reason why the U.S. dollar is declining. I mean, Nations are trying to move, making moves to move away from the U.S. dollar. We're not going to see that happen anytime very soon. But by 2030, you could see a very different world, you know, economically and in terms of global reserve currencies. All right. What are the questions? Ritankar says, can quantum entanglement manipulate human consciousness? Well, that's that's an open question. Quantum entanglement is a phenomenon that we do kind of understand much better now. uh, But we don't understand human consciousness at all. Science doesn't even have a clear definition or even a vague definition of what consciousness is. Consciousness is a thing. Nobody can deny it. It is a thing. I mean, when we humans, when we see consciousness, we recognize it immediately. You see a cat, we know that cat is conscious. We see a dog, we know the dog is conscious. You see a crow somewhere, you know the crow is conscious. You see a snake, that snake has a certain level of consciousness. We see other people, they're conscious. So we know consciousness is a phenomenon that exists in nature. It's, But what is it? Do we have a definition? We don't have a neurological definition of consciousness. We don't have a chemical, biological definition of consciousness. And we don't have a physical definition of consciousness. What constitutes a physical system? Let's say I give you a black box and it, it, it has a consciousness within. How do I define the parameters of that consciousness? And what is consciousness? Is it an emergent phenomenon that emerges out of complex systems? So the the more complex a system is, the more conscious it is, which would imply that the entire universe has even rocks and stones and trees and plants and whatever has has some level of consciousness. So we don't know. If it's an emergent phenomenon that emerges out of complexity, maybe microscopic complexity, then maybe the the quantum world could possibly... uh, contribute to that or possibly give rise to that. Now, clearly, we know that consciousness in human beings resides here. We know it resides here. We are all, we, we perceive the world from here and we know what happens when someone's brain is damaged. You know, it, it impacts the consciousness. So we know that the brain is the seat of the consciousness so it seems like it, it it consciousness is something that resides in a physical apparatus a very the, the human brain is the most complex thing machine whatever you want to call it object known in the in the known universe so consciousness perhaps emerges out of complexity or maybe complexity attracts consciousness from somewhere we have no idea and we don't even know how quantum entanglement would work in the human brain. The human brain is this big, messy, wet object, very complicated object. And does it have uh, you know, clearly at the ultra-microscopic level, it's all quantum. So, how does it work? So we don't have the answers. And one of the real reasons is not because we don't understand quantum entanglement it's because we don't know what consciousness is we don't even have a proper definition of consciousness so we are far away from answering this question consciousness may possibly have uh, you know play a role in quantum mechanics the collapse of the wave function possibly perhaps i'm not saying it does we don't know there are lots of different interpretations of quantum mechanics out there but yes it's a possibility it's it's one of the uh, possibilities that is taken seriously not by everyone, but by certain, but definitely by some physicists. You know, it's one of the mainstream uh, interpretations of conscious uh, of, of quantum mechanics. So, unfortunately, right now we don't have any answers to this question. Very interesting question, but that's what makes research in theoretical physics and quantum mechanics so interesting, because we have these big mysteries out there, and in consciousness as well. Right? Other questions. Other questions. Priyanka says, "How much do you agree with everything that Velina Chakarova from yesterday's podcast said?" So I saw these questions, these questions, <laughs> the comments in in uh, the uh, on the podcast, and people. Some people are very upset. People are very emotional. That why did you bring this person who is very pro US, pro Europe? I mean, what do you guys want? I want to educate you all. I want to expose you all to different worldviews and different viewpoints. Understand this. It is very important that you don't listen to only one viewpoint in one world. You have to understand how the world is. Would you like me to call people who who keep repeating what I always repeat? Or would you like to hear the perspective of other people also? You don't have to agree with it, but understand how other people in different parts of the world look at events geopolitically and otherwise. It's important to have an open open mind. It's important to get exposure and to get exposed to people from other parts of the world and see how they think. What is their worldview? How do they look at, uh, let's say, the Ukraine war or other things? It's important to listen to people from the US, from Europe, from China, from Pakistan, from Japan, from Russia, from Africa. We have to listen to different voices. Only then can we have broader horizons. You don't have to agree with everything the, the, the guest says. And some people were telling me that it should be a conversation. Why, why is it a monologue? When I call a guest on the podcast, the focus is on them, not on me. I speak enough as it is. Don't I speak enough? Aren't you all familiar with what my perspective is? My biased pro-India perspective? I, I'm sure you all, everybody is. So for a change, when I get a guest on the podcast, I speak very little. I have that quality. I can listen. And I never interrupt my guest. And I will never contradict or disagree with my guest. Let them put forth their perspective. That is the whole point of calling a guest. And it's really interesting to have a conversation or to listen to with or or to listen to people who have very different perspectives that broadens your horizons. And then you can afterwards think about it, what she said or he said, or whatever, and you can come to the, your own conclusions. But some people were saying that I am I am now sold out because I've given my platform to somebody who has a different worldview and different maybe pro-US, pro-West worldview. Come on, let's grow up a little bit. Let's be a little more mature. Let's stop reacting emotionally to everything. My objective when I call guests on the podcast is to expose you to a wide variety of worldviews and perspectives. That's part of education. These days in the US uh, academic system, there is this concept of a safe space that we will not be exposed to to perspectives and, and viewpoints that that offend us. Everything has to be safe. Everybody has to say the same thing and believe in the same things. That is not the that is not how you educate anybody. That's how you brainwash people. All right. So uh I, I think anybody who watches me and listens to me knows how much I agree with or don't agree with what Velina said. But it is always instructive to hear her her viewpoint and that of other people. I'm going to call other people from the West in the future, and they will have their own perspective, which will be at odds with my perspective. But I'm going to respect them, and I'm going to give them the the platform, and I want you all to listen to them so that you understand, you get a better understanding. I mean, I, I have been speaking about how the West looks at geopolitics and the Ukraine conflict and India-China relations and India itself, the rise of India. But why not hear it from somebody who's actually from there? So that's my perspective. I I think we have to be a little more mature. I I know most of my viewers, a significant percentage of my viewers are young, very young people. And I'm really glad that so many young people watch this. I really appreciate that. And my objective is to help you see different faces of the world. Alright, so I may not agree with everything my guests say, but I will give them the platform so that you can learn something from this interaction. Alright. Um, Sunita says, uh, when I share your videos in WhatsApp, my Australian sister-in-law felt offended about our point of view of the West, how should I react? Well, stop sharing the videos if she gets offended. When You know, lots of people react emotionally and when the reaction is negative, it's going to have... What's the point? What's the point? How should you react? That's how life is. People will always have different perspectives and viewpoints. And it's all the conditioning that we go through as children and as adults. We are all conditioned by so many different sources. The education system, the media, entertainment industry, our friends, our, our social circle. It all conditions us. And then we, when we hear a viewpoint that is very different from that, we typically react emotionally, and we get offended. How can you say such things? How can you share this share this sort of video? Who is this person? So, what is the point of doing that? Don't share it with her. Have a I mean, have a good social life. Have a good family life. Yeah, don't don't share such, such stuff with her. What's the point? You, now that you know what her perspective is, what is the point? Let's, let's uh, you know, have less friction in life as much as possible. <laughs> uh, Pinky Komari says, suddenly the Western media has started attacking the Dalai Lama for kissing a kid, but does not talk about Biden kissing young children and women, harassing them. My thoughts, my thoughts, <laughs> it's hypocrisy. First of all, uh, listen, uh the Dalai Lama is a very elderly person. The, the truth is that as people get really old, they revert to childlike behavior. Okay, many of them. I'm not saying all of them. Some people, they are very sharp, and, uh, you know, with great mental mental acuity deep into their 90s. Look at Henry Kissinger. is still just as sharp as he was 50 years ago. Really sharp guy. But most people, after they reach a certain age, 60, 70, maybe 70 or 80 plus, then they kind of revert back to childlike behavior. The memories are there, the intellect is there, but the behavior becomes more childlike. And they would then tend to do certain things that they would otherwise not do. right? And there is obviously a cultural disconnect. Tibetan culture has certain customs. Every culture has certain customs that look very strange when you look at it from an outsider's perspective. Okay, So in Tibetan culture, there is this... Uh, Tradition of sticking your tongue, tongue out in in greeting in New Zealanders in New Zealand's Maori culture there is this tradition of greeting people by rubbing your noses with each other. It's very weird, but you've got to respect that it's it's a cultural tradition there and it's completely normal and good over there. It doesn't have any bad meaning or intention. Similarly, uh. So it could be something to do with culture. They greet each other in Tibet by sticking their tongue out. And I even heard that, uh, I don't don't know the details, but I will tend to give the Dalai Lama the benefit of the doubt. Obviously, once this happened, the pro-China media has gone all out and they are bombarding social media with all kinds of fake facts about uh, fake fake stories about how tibet was extremely feudal and evil and they should sacrifice children and sacrifice people and enslave people all kinds of horror stories that they are putting out without any shred of evidence and the evidence they will give you is that some european went there and saw it well europeans have said all kinds of horrible things about india as well does it mean those things are true so please understand and please don't get swayed by these uh, this social media narrative lots of of people on china's payroll people who look european or who are european or american they are also you know putting this nonsense out on social media so this unfortunately has given the chinese communist party the ccp a great golden opportunity to go all out in demonizing tibet and justifying their horrific occupation of that wonderful nation. Okay? So, uh, I personally give the Dalai Lama the benefit of the doubt. I personally am not an expert in Tibetan culture and customs. I am aware that they greet each other with the tongue out, by sticking the tongue out, and there could be more to it. So, I don't think the Dalai Lama is an evil person. Some people do allege that he is a Chinese agent and all that. Well, I I, I don't know about that. Okay? Some people do allege that. But I don't know. So... Uh, so you see this entire social media outburst, this outpouring of hate and vitriol and demonization on the Dalai Lama, on, 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 on Tibet and Tibetan culture. But the same people will be very quiet when it comes to the, the, the wonderful propensity and proclivities of President Biden. I mean, it's all out there in the public domain, the way he, I mean, his behavior, his behavior, his ghastly, horrific behavior. And nobody speaks about that. That tells you that that, that you cannot trust the media. You cannot trust the media, the mainstream media, and all these social media activists who suddenly have become very conscious about the alleged atrocities that were perpetrated in, in Tibet before the Chinese invaded and conquered and annexed the nation. Don't trust this. These are all lies. This is a concerted social media campaign. We know in India about these toolkits, you know, a whole bunch of uh, prominent Twitter accounts and Facebook account and whatnot. They start this concerted campaign all of a sudden with very similar tweets and very similar statements, all in unison, the trend hashtags and all that. This is all artificially engineered, isn't it? We understand that. Well, the same thing is happening right now with Tibet. And the same people will be completely quiet when it comes to their president or the president of the US. So this is hypocrisy. It's double standards. It's they are trying to artificially engineer people's thoughts and sentiments. And they're trying to create a very pro-China, um, a pro-China environment. They're trying to essentially justify what the Chinese have been doing. You know, the horrific occupation of Tibet, which still continues temporarily. Mm-hmm. So these are my thoughts about this matter. Okay, what else? Joy Patel says, Is the universe infinite? What do you personally think about it? I my personal thoughts are that you know <laughs> when I was a kid, when I was a kid like three or four years old, I've been I've been thinking about the universe and weird stuff, nerdy stuff like that since a very young age. Okay, since I was very young. So I used to wonder, you know, the universe. Obviously, infinity doesn't make any sense. Division by zero doesn't make any sense. I kind of knew it at that age. So I used to think, let's say you I, I travel to the end of the universe and now we are at the end. So if I try to go forward, what happens? Do I hit a black, do I hit a you know a hard, impenetrable wall? What's beyond that? I used to wonder about it. So my my personal thoughts are that I have no idea. We know that the observable universe is has a diameter of, a, of roughly 90, 95 billion light years. That's how far we can see. That's the observable universe. That's the horizon. That's the cosmic horizon. And we know that galaxies are every day going beyond the observable horizon, which tells us that there is a universe out there, but it's no longer accessible to us. It's not even visible to us anymore because of the expansion of the universe. Right. So I think the universe is way larger than what we see That's for sure. I personally don't think it's infinite because infinity is non-physical. It doesn't make any sense mathematically or physically. Infinity. Infinity is essentially you take any number and you divide by zero. That is unphysical. That's a singularity. I mean, that's the same as a singularity in black holes, which tells you that your theory doesn't work. So I don't think the universe is would be infinite. I think it will most likely be way larger than what we see. 90, 90 billion light years of diameter. That's that's what we see. That's a sphere that we see. It It's most likely much larger than that. How much larger, I have absolutely no idea of telling you. Because I don't know. No data. When you don't have data, you cannot say. Right. Um, does multiple sexual partners before pre-marriage affect marriage. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. I don't, I don't think it's a good thing. These days, everybody thinks it's a wonderful thing. Have, have lots of partners. Mm-hmm. I think it's a terrible thing. You know, you, you don't develop a sense of loyalty to one person, which is very important in life. Trust me, it's very important to be loyal to one person in life. Mm-hmm. Life, life is not something you take that lightly. But these days, because of media and, and all that, people think... It's great fun to have lots and lots of partners. I think it does affect marriage. I don't think it's a good thing. Right? Okay. Uh, Next. Gopi Krishna says, how did our ancestors actually understand, understand math? How did they start to interpret math? Well, we all know if we have one apple and we get another apple, then we have two apples. So we learn how to count like that. I think even crows and... And primates like chimpanzees, gorillas can can count up to a certain number. And in very primitive human cultures, I don't know, I will not take names, but they had like, it, they could count up to seven or eight or 10. And then the next number was uncountable. Yeah. Uh, so even non-human uh, species, some of them have the ability to count because you can see, right, one plus one is two, that you can take a bunch of two and you take another bunch of two, you get four so um, up to a certain number other species can count some other species not all of them I mean I'm sure hummingbirds can't count but chimpanzees and gorillas and bonobos most likely can count up to a certain number and so can crows and I'm sure elephants as well so that ability is there it's part of part of the genetic programming of many species but eventually the breakthrough that our ancestors made was the discovery of the decimal system which gave which suddenly you know unleashed uh, unleashed our, our mathematical ability. So uh, that's how it would have happened. It would have happened very, very long ago. Uh, the decimal system is most likely a much more recent uh, discovery and that the credit for that goes to India. Okay. How does astrophysics and space impact history? Examples including India how does astrophysics and space impact history sometimes there are certain astrophysical phenomena space phenomena which kind of imprint themselves on human consciousness one i mean you know there's a very strange thing out there there is this symbol this geometrical symbol that it, there is one geometrical symbol that is regarded as sacred and auspicious, across the planet, for thousands of years. And this is irrespective of where the culture is, whether it's in Africa or in the Americas or in or in Eurasia or anywhere else. And that symbol is a swastika. Now, how did the swastika come about? You know, that's the big question. Most likely, it was a celestial phenomenon. So we have comets, right? We know that comets exist. These are big, not big, but you know, these dirty, dirty snowballs that come out from the Oort cloud in in the outer reaches of the solar system. And as they come closer to the sun, they get heated by the solar radiation and the solar wind. And that causes the snow, the, the water, you know, the water to melt and, and evaporate. And the dust also is released. And you get this big, long, shining tail because of the interaction of the solar radiation. So that's how comets develop tails as they get heated as they approach the inner solar system. Now, sometimes you have a comet with two tails. In very rare occasions, you have comets with three tails. And I'm sure that in extremely rare occasions, you would have a comet with four different tails so imagine a situation thousands of years ago you have an extremely rare comet that's very visible okay across from all around the world from all around, all around the planet it has four tails and then the, the for some reason the solar wind causes the comet to suddenly move like that and then that cross four tails becomes swastika so that's something that if you see once you will never forget in your life you remember that and maybe in the years in, in in that year was a very good year perhaps you know extremely good climate great crops abundance every, everywhere and maybe that went on for a decade so the appearance of that comet was then associated with extreme abundance and prosperity and good luck and all that and that's something that was then that continued and still continues so that's an example how a celestial phenomenon can impact history and the human consciousness and today the only culture that still venerates the swastika is Indian culture and Indian culture spread across Asia which means the swastika is venerated wherever you have Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism and Jainism right, including all of Asia, Eastern Asia, all the way to Japan so that's an example I could offer you okay um, other questions, let us see, um, what Pratik says, what are your views on veganism? Is it the way of the future? So veganism is this new fad that exists in the West for the past few years, maybe decades in which they will eat no animal products whatsoever, not even drink milk or eat cheese or yogurt, nothing, nothing that comes from animal, animal products. Uh, in India, we have never been vegan. Historically, those Indi- those of us and our ancestors who did not eat meat would still consume dairy products. So in India, historically, traditionally, milk has not been taboo. Neither has cheese, paneer or, or, or yogurt, curd, right? These products have always been consumed by vegetarians. It's never been taboo. So I think veganism is taking it to an extreme... Uh, to a, to, a, to a rather ridiculous extreme. It's about, you know, showing that I am morally superior to even vegetarians. So we in the West are superior to Indian vegetarians in India. Indian culture, which has been doing this for thousands of years. I think veganism is nonsense. I think it's taking things to a very rather ridiculous extreme. It's not the way of the future. And I am not even opposed to being non-vegetarian. In India, people have... <laughs> India, obviously, historically has always had the largest popula- percentage or population of vegetarian people, people who did not eat meat because um, in our culture, we have this uh, this uh, tradition, this precept that Ahinsa Parma Dharma means as far as possible, be non-violent. Don't inflict unnecessary pain on any living thing. That doesn't mean that you have to be passive and, and accept any nonsense, but you know, yeah. that. So, uh don't unnecessarily harm or cause pain or suffering to any 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 living being. And that's why it's always been seen as morally superior to not eat meat. But there have always been people throughout India, throughout the ages, who did eat meat, right? So I think it's a personal choice. I don't think veganism is, is a fantastic, better way of living life. I don't even think the, these plant-based meats and all that are really good. I think it's a I, I don't even know what the purpose is. Uh, clearly, certain kinds of animal agriculture are terrible for the planet. You know, Especially the beef industry is horrib- horrible for the planet. Um, and uh, yeah, so one has to have sustainable ways of living. So I think vegetarianism is definitely a superior way. I think veganism takes it to an unnecessary extreme. But I am not against anybody who prefers to eat meat or whatever. It's entirely your personal choice. Who am I to tell you how to live your life? I think vegetarianism overall is better for the planet. It's more sustainable and it's better for the environment and for our future generations, those who will inhabit the earth after we are gone. You know, when you do damage to the planet, you are essentially hurting your descendants. So that's what I think about this. <clears throat> All right. Um they just says, why does the moon not revolve around itself? The moon does rotate. It does. It has a period of 28 and a half days, which exactly corresponds to the time it takes for the moon to do one revolution around the earth, which is why we only see one face of the moon the bright side or the, or the there's a far side also so the moon is in a resonance with the earth it does revolve but it revolves very slowly that's how that's how it it, it happens and you see this a very similar phenomenon the same phenomenon with pluto and its moon charon they also are in this resonance priyanka says if we were to bring back the ancient indian system of education how would such a school be in this modern era would it be too drastic to make sanskrit the medium of its communication in such a school well i have always been in favor of bringing back sanskrit and making it the civilization civilization language in india people like me we grew up learning speaking english learning english it's almost like our primary uh, you know language of communication it's terrible it's an example, a prime example, a living example of mental colonization. I am myself a great visible example of mental colonization in the, in the sense that I am more comfortable with, with English when it comes to the subjects I have studied and researched deeply about. I, I'm not that comfortable talking about physics, for instance, in Hindi or other, any other language. I'm not talking comfortable talking about history in Hindi. I, I am way more comfortable expressing myself properly in English. It's unfortunate. So I would like the future generations to not be mentally colonized in this manner. And the only language that makes sense in India as the civilizational language is Sanskrit. I know it's a controversial statement. I know lots of people will, will whatever, will say wonderful things in the live chat about this. But yeah, The only language that makes sense is Sanskrit. And it's not a dead language. So much of our vocabulary, whether it's north, south, east, west, in the Indian languages, comes directly from Sanskrit. If you listen to, if you hear someone speaking in Sanskrit, you can understand most of it. It's definitely a complex language with a very rich and diverse vocabulary. But if you are taught this from childhood, it's, it's the most natural language for any Indian person to learn. It's the easiest language for an Indian person to learn. Uh, so i think it's definitely i don't think it's too drastic to make sanskrit the medium of of communication you you do it in a phase wise in a phased manner you know you introduce it first of all at the nursery level instead of teaching children a for apple and all the nonsense you start with sanskrit Kakaga, all that and it can be done up to the college level in a period of 20 25 years it can be done slowly gradually in a phased manner and uh, it's it's a political decision, unfortunately. Uh, the Indian system of education was very complicated. I mean, it was, it was it was a complex system. In the Vedic age, you had Gurukulas, but not so in the let's say the Gupta period, or even a thousand years before today. You had these great universities at the highest level, and at the lowest level, at the grassroots level, you had temples. Temples were the medium of education. Where, where temples were centers of education. So I have like three or four episodes, you know. In the Ask Abhijit series, in the in this show, uh, from episode twenty nine to th- thirty three or something around that, around those episodes, in which I have gone into great detail about education, about what's wrong with the education system, what can be done to change it. Uh, so, in case some of you are interested in knowing my thoughts in detail, you can look at those episodes, which are fully focused on education. I think it's something we should do. It will be something that will be really beneficial for everybody in India, especially the future generations. All right. <clears throat> Harsh Rati says, according to you, who would have won if Julius Caesar and Alexander would have faced each other in battle? Mm, interesting question you ask. Julius Caesar actually, as far as I know, he... Idolized Alexander, and he wished that he could be as great as Alexander was. Um, Alexander, obviously, we know that he rampaged across across Asia. He did all kinds of horrific cruelties, which are kind of kind of whitewashed and not told. We're you not know, told about those things. And eventually, he tried to invade India, and uh, well, that led to his demise. Yeah, he he finally got a very harsh dose of reality when he came to India tried to invade India his beloved horse died he himself got extremely seriously injured and he limped back to Babylon and over there he died so that is Alexander but he was a brilliant strategist tactician great soldier one of the great generals of all greatest generals of all time and so was Julius Caesar now Alexander did not have the resources that Rome had. Julius Caesar won so many battles. He conquered so many territories. He conquered Gaul, which is the Celtic territory. He conducted a proper genocide out there, which no one speaks about. He even conquered the English islands. He uh, conquered parts. He conquered Greece. He conquered Iberia, Hispania, whatever it's called, Hispania at the time, in parts of North Africa, even Egypt. He did a lot. I think if the two were were to face each other, I think if you look at the careers of both these two uh, guys, these two gentlemen, I think Julius Caesar overcame bigger odds than Alexander. And he had access to better resources than Alexander. So I think if Julius Caesar and Alexander were to face each other in battle, I think Julius Caesar would come out on top. And if Julius is there, or Alexander had to face Chinggis Khan. Both of those guys would have been annihilated by Chinggis Khan. That's what I believe. Right. Kazi Aftab says Your thoughts on the recent attack on the Japanese PM? Yes, today we hear the news that uh, during an election rally or, or some political event in which Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida was participating. A, a bomb of some kind was was detonated, perhaps in the vicinity or in the direction of the Prime Minister. And uh, if media is to be believed, it was a smoke bomb or something like that. So, so a smoke bomb is not a very dangerous device. It's going to you know, throw off a lot of smoke and it, you'll hear a big blast, bang, that sort of thing. So it's more like a warning than an actual attempt to kill someone. So, what do I think about this? Well, we know what happened recently. Mr. Fumio Kishida, from his own party, you had the, the great Shinzo Abe, who was recently assassinated, recently, like, in the past couple of years. Um, when was it? More than a year ago, for sure. Mr. Abe was a great, possibly the greatest leader Japan had, has had since the end of the Second World War. A true Japanese nationalist, somebody who wanted to bring Japan, Japan back as a, as, as a, as, well, an independent nation, right now Japan is under U.S. occupation. He wanted more power for the Japanese people and the government. Well, we know what happened to him. Now, recently we hear that uh, that Japan has, uh, has has decided to start purchasing oil from Russia. Mm-hmm. Well, that is obviously a very naughty behavior if you look at it from the U.S. perspective. So maybe it is. Uh, I don't, I'm not. I'm not alleging that this power, that power, is behind this mm-hmm. thing. Uh, so maybe it's a warning to Mr. Kishida that don't cross certain lines. The next one won't be a smoke bomb. You know, it, there is a saying in, in in Colombia. The saying is plata o plomo. Plata o plomo. Plata in Spanish means silver. Plomo means lead. So what is silver? Silver is, is treasure, it's money, right? Plata. Silver. Silver is precious, it's valuable. What is plomo? It's lead. What is made out of lead? Historically, they would make bullets out of lead. So when you give somebody the option of plata or plomo, you're saying either you take the money, the bribe that we're offering you, or take the bullet made out of lead. So maybe this is a way of conveying the same message to Prime Minister Fumio Kishta. Plata o plomo. So one. You get warned once. You won't be warned again. I don't know. It's 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 a possibility. We don't know who is who's behind that. Typically, it's some some lonely person who does who will be called mentally deranged or whatever, and they'll say that it was a pers- person who was acting alone. That's typically the 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 story you're given. Yeah. So I don't know who who was the guy that killed assassinated Prime Minister Abe. Uh, what happened, what what turned out to be his motives. Was he acting alone? And they'll tell you he was acting alone. He was mentally deranged, disturbed, whatever. And it's a one-off incident. Nothing to do with any politics or whatever. You don't have to believe all that, you know. (laughs) There have been such, other such things that have happened in the past. In the 1960s, for instance. But yeah, that's what I think about this. I think it could possibly be a warning to the Prime Minister of Japan. Shaheen wahban zadegan says is zoroastrianism the second oldest way of life or religion apart from hinduism um hinduism as we know as far as we know from the evidence that we have is clearly the oldest uh, way of life or religion uh so when did so zoroastrianism what we call zoroastrianism is something that sta- that emerged from the teachings of the prophet Zarathustra. Uh, Zarathustra, as far as I remember, was born in the city of Balkh of or Herat in Gandhar, not in Persia itself. And uh, and then he went on to, to, he had this revelation, it's the first re- revealed religion, the first religion with the prophet. And then eventually he somehow succeeded in getting the king's, the Haqshamanish kings, Achaemenid kings of Iran, the emperors to adopt his religion and eventually it became Persia's official state religion or unofficial state religion but the religion of the masses. So the question is, was there any other religion that we knew of before the the path of Zarathustra? Uh, So we don't quite know when Zarathustra was born and when he lived. Uh, Assuming he lived 3000 years ago uh, it could possibly make zoroastrianism the second oldest religion uh we know the, the other contender is judaism now we don't quite know when judaism emerged um king solomon king david etc they are supposed to have lived around 800 or 900 bc or thereabouts so and and some people say that there is some evidence of of Yahweh, the the Jewish God, in some pottery fragment or some kind of such thing in Egypt, but that is obviously controversial because it's being interpreted in a certain manner. So that's not hard evidence. So let's assume that Judaism is 2,900 years old. So if Zarathustra lived before that, then clearly Zoroastrianism Zoroastrianism is the second oldest known religion. So that's what I can tell you, because the, the problem is that we don't know when Zoroaster Zoro, Zoro lived. What happened is that after the Arabic invasion of Iran, all the pre-Arabic, pre-Islamic history was wiped out. They in Persia also they would have had you know textual evidence and records of the Achaemenid Empire and and the history of Persia until that time. And they would have had lots of fire temples and all those things. None of that exists today, right? Just like none of the great Indian temples in northern India still exist or the great universities, all all of that has been destroyed. But it first happened to Iran, and then it happened to India. So unfortunately, in Persia also, all the records of the past of Persia were destroyed. So that's why we don't know when Zoroaster lived. And because of that, we don't know what came first, whether it was Zoroastrianism or Judaism. I would say most likely Zarathustra lived before the emergence of Judaism. So from my perspective, from what I understand, from what I think, most likely Zoroastrianism is the second oldest religion or way of life after Hinduism. And it emerged out of Hinduism. Zarathustra was born a Hindu, obviously in in Gandhar. And then he created his own path. Okay. Okay. Let's see something else. Thakur Veshnam says, India did a reusable rocket test and it was successful. How was it different from SpaceX? What is its future in the Indian space industry? Well, recently there was this test of a reusable vehicle, space vehicle. Uh, I'm not sure if it was a reusable rocket as such. See, when you talk about SpaceX and their reusable rockets, it's typically the boosters that they use. The first stage booster, booster or boosters, that would take a rocket to a certain altitude. Then the boosters are ejected, and the second stage takes off, it ignites, and it takes the rocket into orbit. That's typically how it's done. And then these boosters, which are ejected, typically, historically, even with Heathrow, these boosters which are ejected, are then jettisoned into the ocean. But with SpaceX, those boosters, they go back to a pre-designated position, location and they land themselves upright, so that they can be reused again and again. So that saves a lot of money. Now when it comes to ISRO, I, from what I know, and I kind of know about this, uh, I, I have not seen any evidence of ISRO even trying to develop a reusable rocket or a booster. So the test that happened recently was that of a reusable, of a a glide vehicle that kind of uh, autonomously landed itself. And it was a scale model, which means not a full scale model, but a small scale model. But it demonstrated that the technology works. So what they did was that they took this aircraft, this vehicle to a certain altitude. They, they, They tied it to a heavy lift helicopter, an Indian, Indian Air Force helicopter. And it was taken to a certain altitude, high up, and then it was released. And then this thing, the vehicle, it autonomously landed itself, you know, without needing any external uh, guidance, remote controller, or any such thing. So that's what was done. So it's kind of uh, a good step forward in our technological development. So eventually we will have this kind of vehicle which can take uh, heavy cargo into orbit and then come back. Kind of a space shuttle kind of thing in some sense. And eventually even possibly astronauts. So that's what happened. I think it's a very good step. I think there is so much that the Indian space industry can do, so much that ISRO can do. Nowadays we have seen the... uh, In recent times, we've seen the entry of private companies in the space uh, launch industry. I think it's a very good sign. Uh, So I think overall, there's a huge amount of potential, untapped potential in the Indian space industry. There are so many brilliant engineers who want to get into this, you know, who want to do this. I, I really wish the government would would unleash this potential give people the opportunity people with great ideas give them the funding and give them some time to see to to make their ideas work obviously not all ideas will work there will be many failures but that is the process you have to go through that's the process you have to go through so I think there's a huge amount of potential in India the future clearly is very bright but I would hope to see some acceleration of the process I would like to see some ambition and some hunger within ISRO. I'm sure there are lots of ambitious and hungry engineers in ISRO who would be telling themselves, why can't we go ahead and surpass SpaceX? Just give us the funds. Give us the go-ahead and we'll do it. I think that, that's something that needs to happen. It doesn't take a huge amount of money to do that. I would like to see ISRO's budget doubled instead of instead of curtailed. But that's what's happening right now. So I don't know. Anyway, the government knows what's best. I assume, I, I, I suppose but it's uh, yeah kind of disappointing all right shivagami devi says emmanuel macron vasal comment so monsieur macron has been uh, saying uh, interesting things of late he went to china he met with president xi jinping and uh, he tried to bring china to towards his viewpoint of of for making russia see reason And convincing Russia to abandon its terrible Ukraine war or whatever, that obviously did not work. um, Mr. Xi Jinping showed a great deal of impatience when he was being told all this. Um, And Macron is trying to, like like I've always said, the only nation within NATO that has a somewhat independent, somewhat quasi-independent foreign policy, that nation is France. That's the only nation that has its own nuclear warheads that are are within its own control. It has its own nuclear submarines that nobody else controls. And it is obviously constrained by being a part of NATO, but it has some independence compared to nations like the UK or Germany or Italy or, or whatever else. So, France has historically been a nation that has chafed at these chains. You know, they have always, they they have a thousand-year enmity with the British, with the English. Not the British, but the English. So the French and the English have historically been antagonists, enemies. There have been small periods of time when they have kind of collaborated or cooperated, but typically, mostly it's been a thousand years of enmity. And now that the capital of the Anglo-Saxon Empire has moved from London to Washington, that's, that's the enmity. But after 1945, Western Europe Europe has been ruled by the Americans and controlled by the Americans. So the French have always chafed at being being placed under such constraints. Uh, The French leader Charles de Gaulle tried, he himself spoke about this, that we need to distance ourselves from NATO. And he did take France out of the core group of NATO. It was still part of NATO, but, you know, a certain amount of autonomy for for some years. It's only in the 21st century that France rejoined the the core workings of NATO. Uh, So, Monsieur Macron obviously is a continuation of that legacy, of, of the tradition of France, wishing it was independent again. And these comments have to be seen in that light. And obviously, it is an indication of the fact that America's influence is kind of on the decline. It's decreasing. And when this happens, lots of nations will try and explore opportunities of, of loosening the grip that the U.S. has had on them for decades. So this Vassal comment, I mean, it's 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 remarkable that in the last year or two, this word, which was kind of obscure and not a mainstream word, has now become so mainstream. The V word, Vasal. Maybe I have to uh, something to do with it, small, some small amount, perhaps. <laughs> okay. Uh what do we have? What do we have? I've spoken about Mitanis lots of times. Um, amit degada says what is your view on the recent us confidential documents leak it appears like this was a planted leak not a real leak uh, that's the that's the sense i get i have not really looked into the documents and done done a deep dive and researched all this uh, there's so much happening right now it could very well be part of a bigger misinformation campaign to make it look like certain things exist but you know something else is brewing somewhere else uh, I, I get the feeling, the sense, I, that this may be a, a planned leak, which means that it doesn't really tell you the truth, that's the sense that I get. Maybe I will do a deeper dive into it and maybe come to a different conclusion perhaps, but I think, that's, that's the feeling that I get. Okay, Arya Kulkarni says, why do you think communal hate is increasing in India? I see kids these days joking, joking about these things and teasing each other. What can be done to correct this? You know, we are being told that India is becoming more communal and there's more hatred. I don't think so. Social media, they say that it's, it's all because of social media, that everybody is now being uh, radicalized and, and the divisions in the nation are becoming starker. It's not the case. What I think and what I see is that social media has simply brought out the divides that already existed. Okay, they have social media simply brought out in the limelight the divisions that already existed. These divisions have been created by outsiders and then they have been perpetuated by certain political outfits. Certain political outfits I'm not naming anyone's name, but they have been perpetuated by various politicians and political outfits, not all, I'm sure, some for their own political benefit so over time after 1947 we have seen a deepening of these divisions so that's been done by politicians social media hasn't exacerbated this it's simply brought it out into the public eye that's what happened um what can be done to correct this we need to really <laughs> i think what india needs is a way stronger central government more centralization and obviously, a good government—you know, not not <laughs> the right government, the right leadership. There's too much federalism in India. Too much is is. There's, you know, states are given too much power in some in some ways. In some ways, there is so much a state can do, and the central can't can't intervene because it's you know some some things are um, the dominion of the state. And this is especially dangerous in certain, some perhaps border states, I would imagine, perhaps. So I think the entire system that has been created after 1947 is, is responsible for the situation that we have right now. What we need is a totally revamped and different system. A new constitution, maybe a presidential system, perhaps, or as a different system, maybe something similar to what we had before in before the past one thousand years of humiliation that India suffered, something that reverts back to our re, that that goes back to our cultural and civil, civilizational roots. That's what India actually needs. Um, yeah. Right. What else do we have? (laughs) Kaustub says, is everything part of solipsism? Is everything really true or maybe a dream? Look, I'm not a philosopher. I don't know, Possible? it's a possibility. It's a possibility that everything we see and touch and imagine and feel may all be made up by our own mind and we may be all alone in the universe. And we are just dreaming all all of this. There's no real way of knowing it, right? (laughs) Because everything we see, everything we observe Comes through certain senses, sense organs, the eyes, the ears, and all that data goes into the brain and in, into the mind, and it's only then that we can make sense of it. So, what if the only person that exists in the in the world is, is you, and I'm just an illusion, I'm just something that, that your sensory organs made up? That's also a possible possibility. You know, so that's. The solipsistic school of thinking, school of thought, or school of philosophy. So, I don't know, right? I don't know. I don't have the answers. I, I do interact with all kinds of people. They seem to be very real to me, you know. <laughs> but who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Maybe everything is just a dream. <laughs> so, that's philosophy. And I'm not a philosopher, so I can't really go deep into it. But it's an interesting thought to have. Trippy solipsism. Okay, Ramai Raj Singh says during the e- during the early years of the Indian nation state, it was necessary to be socialist in order to better control the population and by extension keep the state united. My thoughts. My thoughts. Imagine a different scenario. Okay, we had socialism, Nehruvian socialism. Was Mr. Nehru able to keep the 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 nation the state united he gave away the chunks of territory he gave away the coco islands to burma he gave away the Kabo valley of manipur to burma again he gave away parts of of he gave away Akshay Chin, gave away Chin to to the chinese after he gave away tibet to china he gave away parts of arunachal to the chinese he gave away jammu and kashmir parts of it large chunks of it to the pakistanis he rejected gwadar he did not unify, he did not keep the state united through his socialism and his policies. He gave away parcels of Indian territory as if they were his own personal property. So what does that have to do with socialism? You know, and so of course he was socialist. So if if this is socialism, then it was better not to have socialism. Now imagine, let's do a thought experiment. Imagine instead of Mr. Nehru, imagine Subhashan Drabos, People say he was a fascist. People allege that he was a fascist. He did say that he wanted 20 years of dictatorship. Imagine that Subhashadra Bose came to power and he imposed 20 years of iron rule dictatorship. Do you think the population would not have been in control then? Imagine a worse, imagine a more drastic scenario. I'm not saying worse, sorry, wrong word. Imagine a more drastic scenario. Instead, this is a thought experiment imagine hypothetically instead of Nehru and Gandhi you had Joseph Stalin ruling India a person like Joseph Stalin iron rule no dissent tolerated do you think the population would not have been in control and do you think he would have allowed he would have do you think a person like Stalin would have supplied rice to the invading Chinese soldiers in Tibet no he would have actually sent the Indian army to Boot the Chinese out of Tibet and then perhaps he may have annexed Tibet himself. And do you think he would have allowed the Pakistanis to take over POK? He would have ended Pakistan right there. India had the resources to destroy a nation like Pakistan. India had the all the resources of the British Indian Army and the Navy and the Air Force. The Indian Navy of the time was one of the most powerful navies in the world. It was used by the British to control an enormous territory from the Gulf of Malacca from the the state of Malacca to the Strait of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf. Enormous territory which was all controlled by the British through the Indian Navy. So, let's not kid ourselves. It was not necessary to be a socialist to control the population. Socialism was used to destroy the Indian economy. 3%, 4% growth. They, They pejoratively called it the Hindu rate of growth. It was the Nehruvian rate of growth. India In 1947, India's GDP was less than 2% of the global GDP, and India's uh, life expectancy was around 30, maybe 32, maybe 28, give or take a couple of years. That was a disaster. A nation like that could only go up, and yet it was prevented from going up. So I think socialism was a great evil I think Mr. Nehru deliberately delayed India's rise by many decades and and his successors also did that. I think socialism was a great curse for the people of India. What did it do to control the population? What you need to control a population is a strong state. And India's population is not a rebellious population. India's population, go out in the streets of any large city in India today. Do you see cops anywhere? Go to New York, you'll see cops everywhere. Take away the cops from New York City for 15 minutes and you'll see riots and looting and arson. That's what you call a police presence. Total constant 24 by 7 patrolling in New York City. And co- contrast that with any large Indian city. You'll hardly see cops anywhere. And if the cops are there, they will be sitting there just to show their presence because they've been told to do so. India, the people of India are not rebellious, violent people. Okay? M- mainly mainly. So, I don't think that uh, it was necessary to be socialist to control the population. The population doesn't need control. The population is a very civilized, law-abiding population. So, yeah, that is my answer to this question, but interesting question that you've asked, sir. Okay. Was Chinggis Khan cruel? He allegedly killed 10% of the population. Some people have written that he killed these many people or that many people. Where's the evidence? Where is the evidence? See, we read textbooks, but understand that most textbooks are someone's opinion. They are not based on facts. Show me the evidence that 10% of whatever population was killed. Show me archaeological hard evidence. You go to Paris. There is something called the catacombs of Paris. Okay, Under the city of Paris, there are these huge, this is huge network of tunnels. All right? It's full of dead bodies, skeletons. You know how many people are there? Several, there are the remains of several million people. How did so many people die? No one will tell you. Nobody will tell you how so many people died. And it's not from hundreds of years ago. It's more like the past three, four hundred years. So what event happened in the the past three, four hundred years that several million people died and they were all buried in these catacombs of Paris. Nobody has an answer. That is archaeological evidence of millions of people dying. Now, where's the evidence that Chinggis Khan killed so many people? The only accounts we have of Chinggis Khan's campaigns and his career is one, the secret history of the Mongols and secondly, the accounts of his enemies. Yeah? And there is no archaeological evidence anywhere of of him killing X number of people or Y number of people. So whatever we read in these books, history books and all, these are opinions of writers, typically European or Western writers. And they can't digest the fact that a guy from the East was greater than, than their Alexander and their Julius Caesar and their Napoleon. And so they demonize him. They accuse him of all kinds of things. Even worse things than killing 10% of a a region's population. So I completely disagree with this allegation that Chinggis Khan killed 10% or, or whatever number of people. Some say, I don't know, 50 million, 100. I don't know what the number they throw around. There is absolutely no hard evidence for that. Zero zero hard evidence the other story is that he he is the he is the ancestor of i don't know 10% of the world's population today once again zero evidence absolutely zero evidence but it's accepted as, as a fact today people will come and tell you this that he raped so many women and so many people are his descendants show me the evidence show me evidence and what is the evidence how do we find evidence of that first of all you will need genghis khan's own dna only then can you prove or claim such a thing. We don't have evidence of it. We don't have his DNA anywhere. His body has never been found. We don't even have the DNA of, of his descendants. We may have DNA samples of his of, of descendants who came far after him. Many, many generations generations after him, possibly. That's not evidence. Was he cruel? He was a hard man. He went. You have no idea what this guy went through to succeed. He had a horrific childhood. He, he saw things nobody should see. He had to undergo things nobody should undergo. And he was able to come out on top and succeed. He was able to unify his nation in his mid-40s only. Until his mid-40s, from childhood until, until his mid-40s, he was battling all kinds of odds. And then he unified his nation. And he launched his career as a conqueror in his mid or late 40s. And in 20 years, he conquered more territory than Roman emperors were able to conquer in 300 years. So yes, obviously he was a military expansionist, but he only he only conquered in retaliation. He only went to war when there was a just cause for war. And some people don't agree with me. Well, you can take a hike. I don't care. Those of you who don't agree, go somewhere else. See see the account of somebody who who agrees with who <laughs> who agrees with what you think. So. Um, was he cruel? I don't think he was unnecessarily cruel. But obviously he fought so many battles. He waged entire military campaigns. People would die in that. That's something that every single conqueror did, including Julius Caesar, including Napoleon, including uh, Alexander, including Samudragupta, including Ashoka, including Kanishka the Great, and so on and so forth right so i don't think he was specifically or especially cruel but yeah the, that's the kind of image they have created of this man i think he was he was better in my opinion than most of these so called conquerors who are glorified uh no i said take a hike i did not say anything else shri harsha <laughs> <laughs> all, right, all right all right all right okay Vinay Singh Mahan says, um, what is the origin of the Haryanavi language? Why is it called a dialect of Hindi? and Why not Punjabi, Nepali, Gujarati, Marathi? Why are these languages not called dialects of Hindi? Which one is older? See, they have artificially placed Hindi at the top and made it the national language. And then every other language that sounds kind of similar to it will be called a dialect of Hindi. These goddamn linguists don't know what they are doing. Linguistics, Indian linguistics needs to be looked at a priori from scratch, from zero. That's what needs to happen. What's the origin of the Haryanandi language? Clearly an older Prakrit language. There were so many Prakrits in India. These Prakrits all emerged out of Sanskrit. Uh, Even Pali can be considered to be a Prakrit. It was it was an upper branch form of Sanskrit, a broken down kind of corrupted form of Sanskrit. So you had so many Prakrits, several generations of Prakrit. One of the Prakrits I one of the Prakrit's I can think of is Maharashtri Prakrit, which was spoken about 1300-1400 uh, years ago. It eventually gave birth to a number of languages, including present day Marathi. You had an old Gurjari language which gave birth to a number of languages, including Gujarati, including Mewadi, Marwadi, etc. And there would have been other Prakrits that gave rise to languages like Punjabi, Haryanvi, etc. Yeah. So we don't quite know because our historians, once again, have not done this work. They have not delved deep into the linguistic history of India. The Romani people speak various Romani dialects, which are... I would say most closely related to Sindhi, Rajasthani and Gujarati. That's an interesting linguistic path that the the Romani languages have taken. So there is so much research that can be done in India. (laughs) Indian linguistics is a gold mine for linguists but they will not touch it because they have certain agendas. So my, my point is that we don't quite know what's the origin of the Haryanvi language. Why don't we, uh, I would like to go and visit the University of Chandigarh and, uh, and, and speak to some history professors there, you know, eminent historians, and ask them this question. Do they have an answer? They will not have any answer because they've not been doing anything. They will only open a textbook and read out of it and they'll tell you, go and study this, and that's the, some of these things will be in the exam at the end of the year. That's unfortunately how our academicians have been. The extremely low standards in India. That's why I keep telling you all please raise your standards. Don't accept mediocrity. 95% of our academic, <laughs> uh, you know, members of the academic uh, system are, are mediocre to, to be kind to them. To be kind. So, um, so. So why is Punjabi not a dialect of Hindi? You know, all of these languages, they took various different paths, you know, and they had different ancestral Prakrit languages and most all these Prakrits Prakrits came out of Sanskrit. So Punjabi sounds very different from Hindi, doesn't it? Nepali sounds kind of different from Hindi. Gujarati and Marathi, they sound different from each other and from Hindi as well. Gujarati and Marwadi sound very similar. Gujarati and Sindhi sound quite similar. Marathi is kind of the, the kind of, it sounds more like Sinhalese actually, Sinhala. Marathi and Sinhalese seem to be connected in some strange way. So it's it's a fascinating thing, you know, Indian linguistics, but we don't have the answers because, and, and the thing is, I personally perhaps may be capable if I apply myself of doing this research, but I can't fight every battle. Unfortunately, I can't. I can only pick and choose certain battles. I have one lifetime and I can only do that much so much in that. So that's why I, I don't know. I can only tell you what what knowledge is available to us and the origin of the Haryani language. Unfortunately, we don't know which older language it came out of. So there we are, that's where we are today. But yes, if you are in in Chandigarh or or somewhere around there, please go to the University of Chandigarh or any other university and find one of the eminent historians there, and ask this question. Please ask this question, and let's see what, if they have any answer. I can guarantee they have no answers. Joseph Stalin says, Will Russia become a junior partner of India, since India is officially the biggest purveyor of Russian oil? As far as I know, China, even today, uh, it imports more oil from Russia than India does. But, so let's the so imagine hypothetically that by next year india is importing more oil from russia than even china okay imagine that does it mean that russia will become a junior partner of india i think russia has options russia has many options it has india it has china it has other nations iran it has iran so you become someone's junior partner if you have no option but to go to them and there's nobody else for you and when they are in a more advantageous position as compared to you. means they have the money and you have something you want to sell them and you have no option but to sell only to them. And then they can call the shots. They can dictate the terms of the engagement. That's when you become a junior partner. I don't see Russia becoming a junior partner of India or of China even. Um, the recent uh, foreign policy the revised foreign policy that they have put out recently uh, explicitly states that uh, r- that uh, from Russia's perspective, China and India are going to be the top two international partners for Russia. So they clearly have accorded the special relationship to China and India. And in the future, hypothetically, hypothetically, you know, if India and China could somehow let's say, finalize the boundary, then things would really change in geopolitics. Because then the RIC grouping could emerge. That would be a big challenge to any hegemony in the world. If these three three nations could possibly, hypothetically in the future, work together. So I don't see Russia becoming, becoming a junior partner of India. And Russia and India could benefit greatly from each other, actually. More then russia and china could benefit from each other because china will never give russia access to the warm warm seas and the w- warm waters of the so called south china sea etc are are right now under a great deal of contention the chinese are, are claiming this region but there is a lot of um, it's it's not uh, a fait accompli for them and uh, and the russians have a significant amount of of uh, influence and a degree of control in Central Asia. We haven't opened the map. How can it be? Let's open the map. Let's talk about this with, with the map. Where is the map? Where is the map? Here is the map. Okay. So look at the geography. Russia and India. Why do I say they can benefit greatly from each other? India has access to the warm waters of the indian ocean enormous coastline that's what india has and russia has enormous an enormous amount of territory which con- contains maybe half of the world's natural resources oil and gas and coal and iron and other raw materials and obviously agricultural land so russia has all of that but what russia lacks is access to a warm water port. Vladivostok is not a warm water port. So if Russia, which has a lot of influence in Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, etc., if Russia could somehow access India's warm water ports, it would be a game changer for Russia as well as for India. And India and Russia don't have any bone of contention. Or any dispute of any kind with each other. So, all that stands in the way is Pakistan occupied Kashmir. Let's see how long that lasts. All right. Okay. Okay. Let's see other questions. Who has committed more atrocities, USA or USSR? (laughs) Come on. It's the Anglo Saxon Empire. But they are the masters of propaganda. You won't even believe if someone says that they have committed more atrocities. That's the power of propaganda. In the 20th century, the Americans used to say that the Russians are masters of propaganda. And these people like Yuri Bechminov and etc., they came out and they exposed certain Russian techniques and means of doing propaganda. Well, believe me, the Americans are orders of magnitude ahead of the Russians when it comes to propaganda. So there you go okay abhishek abhishek Abhi, abhishek let's let's call it abhishek what did our early vedic ancestors what term did they use to call the religion i think the the term for what we now call religion was dharma which means the right path it was not called Hinduism. The term Hindu did not even exist at the time. Hinduism is an exonym name given by outsiders to Indian India's religion, so to say. It's not just one religion, it's a whole bouquet of religions which is essentially all the same thing in different ways. So I think what our early Vedic ancestors would call it, the most, the closest term would be Dharma. And there's something called Artha as well, R-T-A, Artha. But I think Dharma is the better word for what our religion was in those days, Dharma. Okay, what else? Some other questions. Let's, uh, okay, Watson, 12 years ago, Edited says, was there any influence of the Indus Valley civilization on the Mahaparat? First of all, we have to understand that the Indus Valley civilization was actually the Saraswati Sindhu phase of Indian civilization. It was not some separate civilization that has disappeared and we have no idea what it is. We are a continuation of that. The people who lived in that era and in that geography were our ancestors. All of us will have some ancestry that comes from that region, especially no matter where you are in the country. You will have some ancestry that comes from there. And so it was one phase of India's civilizational history. It was not some separate civilization like your teachers in your textbooks teach you. So it was the Saraswati Hindu phase of India's history and civilization. Was there any influence of that on the Mahabharata? Well, that depends on when the Mahabharata happened. And there is still, uh, we still don't have a clear understanding of what is, what, of when the Mahabharata happened. So a variety of different researchers who I all respect, I have the greatest respect for all of them. These people have all come up with different different dates based on how they have calculated, uh, done the calculations, based on mainly RQ astronomy. And unfortunately, they all fight amongst each other. It's very, very visible public fight on social media all the time. It's uh, unfortunate. So I personally am neutral. I have no favorite date. So my point is, I don't know when the Mahaparat happened. Okay, Various researchers have made various claims. All of them have certain positives, certain drawbacks. So until this entire matter is settled, I will not say that so-and-so was the date of the Mahaparat. The point is, we don't know when it happened. Assuming it happened before 5000 BC. Assuming it happened even before 3000 BC. Then possibly, this phase of Indian history would could have influenced the Mahabharat. And if you read the text of the Mahabharata, it's clearly not a pastoral India that you see. Pastoral means rural, agricultural in India. The Mahabharat has men- it, it. The text of the Mahabharat mentions lots of different cities, lots of different kingdoms. It mentions the entire geography of Jambudweep, the entire subcontinent, from Gandhara to the Himalayas, all the way to the southern part of India. East to West. So, it looks like the Mahabharata, the events of the Mahabharata War happened during a time when India was no longer a rural agricultural society. You had lots of kingdoms, lots of cities. It sounds kind of like the Saraswati Hindu phase of India's history. You know, it, it sounds like that. If you look at, if you, if you study the text, so it's possible that maybe these these events... And the thing is that if you look at all these archaeological sites, Harappa, Mohenjadaro, Rakigari, Bhiranna, these are modern names for these places. We don't know what the people of that time called the, called the cities. Harappa is what we now call this archaeological site. It doesn't mean that 5,000 years ago, the inhabitants of the city called it Harappa. I am sure they did not call it that. They would have called it with some other name, which we have lost. Same for uh, Mohenjo-daro. It's it's a sans- it's a it's a Sindhi word for a mound of the dead. The people of that uh, who lived in the city, in its peak or even in its in its infancy would not have called it Mohenjo-daro. So we don't know the names. We don't know the name of us the the original name of a single archaeological site of the Saraswati Sindhu era. And there are thousands of archaeological sites that we know of. So possibly one could look at the text of the mahabharat and try to understand the geography and what what the names could be possibly so i think there could be a connection between the saraswati sindhu phase of india's history and the mahabharat because the geography of the mahabharat is very different from the from the earlier geography of the ramayana which itself has mentions of lots of kingdoms and place names it's only when you come to the rigveda that we that we see a very different india a fully agricultural and pastoral india so i think the mahabharat was at a much later more advanced stage of india's history and it's possible that the time period of the mahabharat could possibly coincide with the time period with one of the time periods of the saraswati sindhu phase of our history but unfortunately we don't know which phase because we don't know the exact date of the mahabharat or even the century in which the Mahabharata happened thus far. People have made calculations and I have the utmost respect for the amount of work they have done in arriving at their conclusions. But we don't have a proper consensus yet as to which of these claims is correct because these claims are very, very wildly differing claims. So thus far, we as of today, we can't say. Okay. You say, says, Thank you for opening my eyes to how geopolitics works. It's not about emotions, sentiments, or downtrodden individuals. Geopolitics is hard, cold truths and pursuing pursuing national interests. Correct. And you're most welcome. It is. That's what geopolitics is. It's all. It's all about power. It's the pursuit of power, and control, and territory, and resources. That's what it is. Okay. Alright, let's see some others, other other questions. Um, so Sanjit says, are UFO sightings real? I suppose some of them may be real. And we have lots of aerial phenomena, celestial phenomena that look very strange sometimes. I remember back in the day when I was a student doing my master's degree, that time once, in the evening, I had ventured out of where I was staying, evening walk with some friends, in the sky we witnessed an astonishing sight, an entire galaxy, so to say, of little meteors, which were burning up in the atmosphere. And I kind of realized at the time that it's probably the re-entry of some defunct satellite, or maybe a space station or something in between. It was, it was not that rapid meteor that you know disappears in a second. It was burning up slowly and traveling very slowly up in the atmosphere. So yeah, I mean, I understood what it was, but somebody else might have mistaken it for some alien phenomenon, UFO phenomenon. So what I'm trying to say is that many, if not most, of these strange phenomena or sightings have a physically explainable origin. And mostly you can explain it off, explain it without having to bring in aliens into the picture. Okay. But I'm sure there are certain, some sightings somewhere or the other, which may not be so easy to explain. Uh, So I'm open to the possibility that some of these things may involve uh, possible alien activity. I'll I'll be very happy if aliens were to visit Earth. It would be possibly the greatest Moment in thousands of years of human history, possibly. But yeah, we don't know. So are these sightings real? Possibly. But we don't have hard evidence. All the photographs that we see, all the video that we see is typically grainy and blurred. Typically grainy and blurred and black and white. The US military releases these, this video of alleged UFOs or whatever they call UAPs. They have extremely sensitive equipment, camera equipment that can take very sharp, you know, pictures and videos of whatever happens and they still released grainy black and white images. Why? If they really want to prove to the world that this actually happens and exists, why don't they re- release the full definition videos, HD videos or 4K videos they want? So that, that's why it sounds fishy. I have not seen even one such video or photograph that truly astonishes me and, and stumps me. And I'm not able to explain what it is. You know, it's always blurry. It's always grainy. It's often black and white. And it's often something that you can, that you can, you know, spoof using photo manipulation, image manipulation software. So, So, the answer is, In the absence of evidence, all I can say is I don't really know. Maybe some of it is real, but I have not seen any evidence of that. Okay. Um, What else? What else? What else? Abhishek Dayal says Why did monarchy go extinct in the world? Well, if you look at the UK, it's a monarchy, they have a king. King Charles is the king, the second Charles of all time. His mommy was the queen. So you have a monarchy in the UK. Look at Saudi Arabia. They have a king and they have a crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Look at the island of Tonga. They have a king. Do you know where Tonga is? Uh, Let's go to the map. Tonga is in the South Pacific. You know where India is. Let's go eastwards and southwards. We cross the equator, go south of the equator, go east of Australia. Australia, you have New Caledonia, you have Fiji, and southeast of Fiji, you have Tonga. The capital of Tonga is Nuku'alofa. Shall we find where it is? Where is Nuku? Ah, there it is. Nuku'alofa. That is the capital of Tonga. See, I'm, I'm a total nerd. I know all these weird names. <laughs> Nuku Alofa. So this little nation state in the South Pacific has a king. I don't remember who the king is, but yeah. So you have Tonga, which is a monarchy. You have the UK, which is a monarchy. You have Saudi Arabia, which is a monarchy. Japan is a constitutional monarchy where the king, uh, Akihito, whoever it is these days, is, is, is the titular head of state. Uh, You have various monarchies in Europe, which still exist. And of course, you have an empire, the Anglo-Saxon Empire, which is ruled by God knows who. Somebody does rule it. They have presidents and all, but that's only in name. We know that. So you have empires. You also have the Chinese Empire, the Chinese Communist Party, which is a new dynasty. China always goes through dynastic cycles. Dynasties rise and fall with a period of complete chaos in between. So the CCP is a dynastic cycle, and the current emperor is Xi Jinping. So you know, you can give it whatever name you want, you can call it a democracy, you can call it a constitutional this or that, but you have monarchies today, and you do have empires as well. Mm. India, obviously, is a nation-state that is what it is today. So India is no longer a monarchy, we have abolished the monarchical, the kingdoms that we used to have, in my opinion mo- many of these kings and kingdoms and queens they actually did much better for india than the post 1947 certain regimes did but yeah, that, that's just how it is so so that's how it is so it's not really extinct it seems to be extinct it's made to look like it's extinct but it's not really extinct star lord star lord says where homes hindu before they came to india the homes are uh, See today the people of Assam are not pure Ahoms. They call they are called Ahoms, but the a certain they have a certain amount of ancestry. They see the people of Assam today have very mixed, so to say, ancestry. They will have some ancestry which is which has a significant affinity with the people of Bengal. Some ancestry which with affinity to the people of Odisha. Some affinity which is, some ancestry which is which has more affinity with the other states of Far East India, like Manipur, Nagaland, Tripura, etc. Some ancestry which is closer to UP Bihar, etc., that sort of thing. And some ancestry which is Thai. Thai ancestry. Map again. Where's the map? So the Thai people are an ethnic group, ethno-linguistic group that have given their name to Thailand or Thailand. Some of them also live in Northern Laos, and the Yunnan province, which is currently temporarily part of China, has historically been a Thai region. The people who live there are not Han Chinese; they are the majority are Thai, or Dai, D A I, or T A I. Now, some of these people, in the past, sometime in the past thousand or so years, some of them migrated into India, what is now uh, Assam in India, and they obviously assimilated into the population that already lived there. And their descendants are the group that are now called the Assamese people. And historically, they were called the Ahom people, the Ahom kingdom and all that. So the question is, these people, the Thai people who came to India at that time, were they Hindu when they came to India? They were most likely not Hindu. They clearly were a polytheistic people. They were neither Buddhist nor Hindu, you know. If you if you want to make a distinction, they were definitely a polytheistic people, just like how the northeast, the far east of India, used to be before the Christianization of the region. So, if you look at the various peoples of what we call Northeast India, actually, the, it should be called the Far East of India, before the Christianization of this region, which was artificially done by the British and then by Mr Nehruji, uh, the peoples of this region all had polytheistic belief systems. Uh, There was animism, which is spirit worship. There was nature worship. There was uh, ancestor worship and uh, other gods and goddesses. There were these entire pantheons of gods and goddesses and such like. So the Thai people also had the same thing. And they came into India and eventually it became the Ahom people. So that's how history uh, happened. That's how this entire process happened aditya davda says why are there so many civil wars in the middle east and africa well you have to ask yourself who is which who is the major power in the middle east and who is the major power in africa once again let's go to the map so when it comes to the middle east you have uh, you can call it the Middle East or you can call it uh, West Asia, whatever you want to call it. The major power in this region is the United States of America. Okay, they have typically, the you can see all these straight line borders over here, which were drawn by the British and the Americans in the first half of the 20th century. And in the past 70, 80 years, it is the Americans who have been the major power here. And if this region is in turmoil, you have to uh, ask yourselves (laughs) how that happened. The Middle East is always in crisis. Why is it so? Who creates this crisis? And now that the American influence is declining in this region, why is the Middle East stabilizing? Why are Iran and Saudi Arabia shaking hands now? In case some of you watched my podcast with Vilina Chakarova, she herself said this, that US influence in West Asia or the Middle East, whatever you call it, is declining and the region is now stabilizing. I think one leads to the other. One has clearly led to the other. The stabilization has happened because US influence in this region is declining. And their interest in is declining because they no, no longer need Saudi oil. Similarly, ask yourself who Is the major power in Africa. So when it comes to Western Africa, much of it is, you could say, still de facto colonized by France. And when it comes to the remaining nations in Africa, many of them are very strongly under under US influence. Right? And these nations have propped up lots of dictatorships in Africa for the past 70-80 years at least. Ever since colonization officially ended, more or less. But they have kept these Africa in, in turmoil, in strife. And they have also done lots of regime change operations. When somebody comes up... See, you know what happens in Africa? What happens in Africa? Africa is being used to produce consumer uh, crops for the west. So all these nations in Africa, they have so much fertile soil. They have such wonderful resources. Yeah, But none of these African nations grows rice or wheat. They grow exotic crops like coffee. Coffee and other things, which are all exported to the West. So the West gets what it wants, and in return, it it supplies rice and wheat, etc., to the African nations. And God forbid some African ruler decides, president decides, that we should now stop, you know, growing cocoa and all these crops, and start growing rice and wheat for ourselves, something happens. And this guy gets knocked off. So because African nations are not allowed to grow their own crops, they are always forever dependent on the West for feeding their people. And if they implement certain policies that the West does not like, the West can starve them on demand. And there are these nations in Western Africa which all use uh, the French franc or various African versions of the French franc. Which are printed in France, and the French take, you know, they they charge money for printing the currency. So Africa is still colonized, and that's why. It is because of the malign influence of the West that there are so many civil wars in Middle in the Middle East, in Africa, and why Africa is so deeply impoverished despite being so incredibly resource-rich. There are nations in Africa that are they produce enormous amounts of gold, but these nations have zero gold reserves. So where does all the gold go? Ask yourselves. Colonization has never ended. And the West is still destroying these nations. Understand these things. Your history teacher will not teach you any of this. Most likely your history teacher doesn't even know about this. And if they know, they will not teach you. Why ask yourself? Why? Because they want to fool you. They want you to live in a make-believe world and not understand how the real world works. Anyway, Chiching says do I diet? <laughs> I try to, I, I don't really really diet. I try to eat healthy, but it doesn't always work, especially when I'm traveling. I, I uh, try to eat one meal a day, but uh, as you can see, I'm reasonably healthy right now. So yeah, it doesn't always work. Of late, I have been a little bit uh, indisciplined, so to say. Uh, so I need to get my diet, so to say back back on track. I mean one meal a day and go to gym more regularly, build up some more muscles. yeah. <laughs> but um, I don't diet as such. I mean, I don't really cut certain things out of my out of my diet. I like to eat if you eat just one meal a day, you're gonna typically eat healthy, right? So that's what I try to do <laughs> Okay, we have crossed the two uh, two hour mark. So what's my guilty pleasure? My guilty pleasure. I enjoy lots of things. I enjoy lifting weights. I really enjoy that. That's a, it's not a guilty pleasure. It's a, it's a pleasure I embrace. What else do I enjoy? I enjoy reading. I enjoy music, good music. I don't have any guilty pleasure as such. Yeah. I, I sometimes like to eat sweet food. I even eat savory food. I have lots of, Pleasures. I don't think any of these is especially guilty. Yeah, so I don't have any bad habits as such. I mean, I don't indulge in alcohol or any such thing. So so my guilty pleasures are typically reasonably good, guilty pleasures. <laughs> okay. Yes, Martin says, do not eat sugar. I agree. Sugar is not good. Sugar essentially if you take it in sufficient quantities, it starts acting like a poison. So it's not something the body needs. It's, it's nice, it tastes good, that's why we all like it. But yeah, I agree, do not eat sugar as far as possible. And sugar takes different forms. You eat bread, bread, it gets converted into glucose in the body. It's the same thing as eating sugar, you know. So people, <laughs> I, I have known people who diet, so they will drink tea but not put those two sh- uh, teaspoons of sugar in there but they will eat bread they will eat pasta they will eat all kinds of other garbage mm-hmm. so that <laughs> so i used to ask myself what's what's the point of, of of not putting those two teaspoons of sugar in your in your tea so yeah i agree do not eat sugar sugar is is not something that we need it's not necessary of course if you are healthy and fit you can eat sugar but yeah but overall don't um, Dr. jayashankar Shankar says if dowry system isn't Indian or a Hindu custom, who brought the system in our nation? Is it the British who inherited this just like they integrated uh, their caste system into the Indian society? Look in India we had Jati and Varna it's been there for a very, very 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 long time. But this system of four divisions the system was created by the British. We had Jati Varna we have always had this but this system that we have today that when we any when when somebody is born we have to fill in the birth certificate write a certain caste one of these four divisions that has been created institutionalized by the british okay so you have to identify forcibly as one of these four divisions the jati varna system is way more complicated than that and way more nuanced than that the british could not wrap the, wrap their little heads around that so they oversimplified it and created this four Division system. Read what Megasthenes said to write the Greek ambassador to the Mauryan court. He said there were seven classes in India. So it's not. So the, this, is, this is a f- foreign system that's been force-fitted on Indian society. And unfortunately, now we all identify with that. Yeah. Now, dowry. This word dowry, you know, that's a foreign word. We always had this custom, this tradition, that when a girl becomes gets married, her parents give gifts to her so that she can kickstart a new life. What's wrong with that? All parents love their children. All parents love their daughters. When their daughter, traditionally, when a daughter gets married, she goes and becomes part of a different household, right? That's how it, it's always been traditionally. So... And and the boy she's marrying, the guy, the young man she's marrying, also is starting a new life. You know, we had these four ashrams, these four divisions in life. Uh, Brahmacharya ashram, then I forget the names. I apologize, but you, you know what it is, right? Uh, so when you enter the second phase of life, the second 25 year phase of life, when you uh, live a family life and all that, parents typically give gifts to their children. And mostly, the daughter because she's going to a different household so it's been a custom a tradition in india for thousands of years but it's never been something that you demand and you expect that i want 73 refrigerators and three color tvs and 24 cars and five kilos of gold that nonsense is way more recent in that i think that that is something that's emerged in the past thousand years of india's history the millennium of humiliation when society was totally uh, under siege and it could no longer function the way it had evolved for thousands of years. So I think some of these deficiencies and defects crept into Indian society in the past thousand years. To truly understand Indian society, we have to look at how it was before the foreign occupation of India. But we don't have any records. So that's the conundrum that we face. So uh, so to wrap this up, it's always been an Indian custom to give gifts to one's daughter when she goes to a different household. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with that? That's a wonderful thing. There was also the concept of Sridhan. That's a whole different thing. But yeah, it's connected to this. So it's an Indian custom, but it's not never been a social evil. How the way it's become in recent times. Um, I'm not saying it's, it's everywhere, you know. But some people had this unfortunate tendency to demand certain things from the family of the girl who is a who you've arranged to marry your son. That's that's unfortunate and that's not how it should be. Okay. Okay. Ashish says, what do I think about Osho? I think Osho was a very interesting person. Very interesting person. I've not really read his writings and all that. I've not really researched him in deep, in, in depth. But I think he was a very interesting person. I think he was very sharp. Obviously, there are lots of controversies associated with him. <laughs> there was this lady called Sila who, yeah, she's also very interesting. Uh, she she had this podcast with my friend Anvir. So that's, uh, that's interesting. That was interesting. Yeah, so he was a very interesting person. I think he was very intelligent, very sharp. I'm not sure if he had spiritual, mystical, etc. powers or not. I don't know about that. Maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. So I don't know much about Osho. I think he was definitely a fascinating individual. And... Uh, yeah, overall, I think his contribution to the world may have been more positive. In the overall, possibly, yeah. Okay, so I think we are here now at the end. I will take one more question. Okay, <laughs> one more question. Uh, and uh, well, what question shall I take? Saurabh says, is Greek older than Tamil? Definitely not. No way. Greek is not older than Tamil. Uh, I think Tamil could, could possibly be as old as Sanskrit. Possibly. Yeah. We don't know the origins of our languages. That's the problem. So we don't have answers. But clearly Greek is not older than Tamil. Greek is The Greek language is something that emerged from older languages about 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago maximum. Tamil goes way before that. So, absolutely not. Greek is not older than Tamil. And with that, we are at the end of today's live stream. Today's Ask Amidit session. As always, I think there's a whole different energy when we take questions from the live chat. In the past, I've done so many live streams in which I have pre-selected questions. That also is fun. But I think this is more interactive. I think this is... Obviously, I I have... uh, more than a thousand people watching, and they're all asking questions. So unfortunately, I, I cannot answer everyone's questions. So I apologize to those of you who have asked questions, maybe repeatedly, and I've not been able to pick them. I apologize, but uh, we'll keep doing this, and hopefully, everybody gets to gets to interact with me in this manner. Yeah. So thank you very much, all of you. I always appreciate. This privilege that I have of being able to interact with you all in this manner. I really appreciate that. So thank you for watching and I will see you very soon in the next live stream. Until then, take care and always remember this, keep raising your standards. Thank you. See you soon. Bye-bye.